for all those who feel called to build something bigger than themselves, but have no idea or representation as to how to bring it to pass. This podcast is for you. Let's figure it out together. Get ready. Let's build. Four, three, two, one. Everything that you've been through up until this point has helped you create your why. And when you have a strong why, nothing will stop you. That's Family, what's happening? It is so good to be back with you again. I hope you enjoyed the last episode and that you're still fighting the right fight. We're going to turn the page now. Happy Black History Month. Come on. I am so excited to be in the month of February. And please do believe that we celebrate uh, being black every single day of the year. We don't wait till February. We choose black joy. We choose black stories, black narratives. And we choose black existence and livelihood and and the mere uh, act of existing and of choosing to be in this space and in these environments that were not built for us is an act of resistance and it is an act of celebration. But this is just the month where we choose to make sure (laughs) that everybody else is pausing to celebrate that with us and that we're making a mark in acknowledging just what and blessing it is to to be black. What a blessing it is to carry this very rich legacy and culture. And so, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be me if we didn't take this month to to have some fun and to center in and to focus. So I hope all is well with you. I hope that things are going well in your life. I hope that your year is off to a good start, child. Let me tell you. I am glad that January is behind us, okay? One of my favorite memes that I've been seeing is uh, January was a tough year. Now I'm ready to move on to February because it was like that bad. It felt like a year. But I hope that things are going well and that as we celebrate Black History Month, you will be able to hear some narratives and some pieces of inspiration that will kind of continue to inspire you to keep going. So I sat to myself and was thinking, you know, what's our position on the show during Black History Month. How do I want to use this space? And I was pressed really in in my heart to think about what can we do that isn't typically done during Black History Month, number one. And number two, I was particularly pressed um, after watching the R. Kelly series, the documentary, which is a whole 22 episodes we could do in itself. But it really left me to understand that Yet and still, in 2019, we still struggle to even just see Black women, like, let alone equality. Like, we we struggle with just visibility. And I think for me, as I was watching that, I began to have some internal dialogue and I began processing and, and in therapy as well about what what then is is the response, right? I think especially men as we watch that and as we listen, hopefully more than we are talking in some of these conversations, we should be challenging ourselves to know what is the response? What's the root issue? It's not about celebrity. It's not about music and songs and a persona. This is really about, do I practice in my everyday paying attention to 
seeing and validating and more importantly, creating space for black women? And how does that look in terms of me unpacking some of my own traits that that don't do that and that don't demonstrate that? How do I hold those in my circle accountable for the ways in which they might not do that? And then how do I use whatever space God has given me to model that and to live that out? And so as I started to think, the first was like unpacking some problematic things with within Princeton, like, yo, you don't even know that when you do this, it it is the exact same demonstration. But also then I started thinking about, okay, like what, what kind of space? And my mind immediately went to the podcast. And so what I want to do for the month of February is I want to center the accomplishments, the narratives, the stories, the experiences of Black women. I remember growing up and every time we talked about Black history, we talked about Martin Luther King and we talked about Malcolm X and you talked about Booker T. Washington. You talked about W.E.B., Carter G. Woodson. Uh, George Washington Carver. You talked about all these male figures in history, and and very rarely did you get to go down the the litany, the litany of Black women who were responsible for this history that we carry. And so, what I want to do for uh, these next four episodes in the month of February is I want to do my best to use this platform to center really incredible Black women who are building without a blueprint. So this February series is called Black Women Who Build. And I think we have to center their stories and their experiences. And then also, I want to make sure that even when we hear the word building, that we don't think one type of person, right? That when we hear building without a blueprint, we don't think somebody who's young and out of college. When we hear building without a blueprint, we don't think somebody who's male. When we think building without a blueprint, we don't think somebody who is privileged or wealthy, like we really think this applies to anybody who is building without a blueprint for whatever they're building. So I'm excited for us to start here. We're going to start in the realm of education. I think one of the most wonderful things about Black women is that our Black women are in intelligent. And I want to highlight that, that Black women have made incredible contributions in the educational space. A couple of names you might have heard or might not have heard, Black women who build from the past, the one and only Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, who on October 3rd, 1904, opened what was called at that time the Daytona Literary and Industrial Training School for Negro Girls. Uh, Dr. Bethune had a dollar and 50 cent. <laughs> she had faith and five little girls. That school continued to grow. Eventually in 1919, it was changed to the Daytona Educational and Industrial Institute, was changed to Daytona Normal and Industrial Institute, if I'm quoting that right. And then in 1923, the school merged with Cookman Institute of Jacksonville, Florida, founded in 1872. That's when it became co-ed, and uh, that's when it also uh, got affiliation with the United Methodist Church. So what we might uh, know that school as is what later became Bethune-Cookman College and is now Bethune-Cookman University, still there in Daytona, Florida. Like you got to pause for that, that a black woman in the early 1900s started a school for black women, started a school, an educational institution that later became a college and is now Bethune-Cookman University still around. Another name I want to highlight to you is the one and only Dr. Inez Beverly Prosser. Dr. Inez Beverly Prosser a name I had not heard until I started doing research about Black women in, in education. 
I think what was so amazing about Dr. Prosser is that she was able to obtain a couple of degrees from colleges. She received a master's degree and then received her PhD. Wait, let's pause for that. In 1933, Dr. Prosser became one of the first African-American women to receive a PhD. Like that's huge. And it was in educational psychology from the University of Cincinnati. So I highlight the fact that Dr. Prosser was also a member of um, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. So if any AKAs are listening, shout out to you, fam. She was also a member of the AME Church. She was a teacher. Um, She was a researcher. She was somebody who taught in several schools and also advised on how we teach. So I want to center the work of Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune and center the work of Dr. Prosser. Some blasts from the past in terms of Black women who build in the realm of education. But for this episode, I want to introduce you to somebody who is what we like to call living history. Someone who is contributing on a way that is going to go down in history. And she is the one and only Professor Dr. Danielle Roseboro. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her and I'm going to let her talk about her own narrative. I have the opportunity to interview her and she's going to be the first person that we feature this month in our Black Women Who Built series. So buckle your seatbelts in the same vein of Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, in the same vein of Dr. Inez Prosser. I want to introduce you to Dr. Professor Danielle Roseboro. Welcome to the series, Black Women Who Build. I hope that you enjoy every second of this, this incredible Black woman who builds, and I'll talk to you after. Fam, here it is one more time again here on Building Without a Blueprint. I am so excited. I'm so excited that you've tuned in. First of all, I want to thank God for life and love, and I want to thank you for listening. Um, We are in the midst of a huge series that means a whole lot to me. And I don't even want to ruin it by talking a whole lot at the beginning. I want to get straight to the fun that we're going to have and the conversation and the opportunity that you have to meet someone who is incredibly special. I'm not going to give a long introduction because we are going to unpack some of her story, but professor, author, researcher, extraordinaire, curriculum builder, motivator to many, a champion for our community, for kids, for education, and just someone who has impacted me greatly in the very short time that we've had to interact with one another. I want you all to help me give a very, very, very kind, warm building without a blueprint welcome to the one and only Professor Dr. Danielle Roseboro. Thank you, Princeton Parker. That was phenomenal as an introduction. Can I have you with me always to do that? (laughs) I think we should. I think we can. I think we can arrange something. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for accepting. Before we go into even how we met, I want to just kind of set the conversation and preface it this way. Why don't you, in, in your own words, for those who are listening who don't know you, in your own words, who is Dr. Roseboro? Of course, I have to situate myself with my family So first and foremost, I'll say I'm the daughter of a teacher and a factory worker. I'm the granddaughter of farmers, which means a lot, particularly in the South. I'm a Black woman who grew up predominantly as an only child, learning how to listen. 
I have a brother who's 11 years older, but he was my dad's son before he married my mom. So he never lived with us for an extended period of time, but he's still in my familial circle and influenced me incredibly as a child. And last but not least, I'll say I am a wife, a mother, an academic who always grew up questioning the world. And so that's what frames my perspective in my entire life. Wow. Let, let's pause there for a minute. You grew up questioning the world. What were some of those early questions? So you have to understand that my family was not far removed from intense poverty. My parents were working class. So we had a steady life, but we always felt like we were on the cusp of not having anything. My grandmother on my mom's side, both my grandparents actually worked essentially as sharecroppers. It wasn't called that at the time, but essentially they worked for white families on their farms. And so my parents, as college educated as they were, my dad had gone and served in the Navy during Vietnam. So they had quite different experiences than their parents, but they brought that history into our family. So our dinner conversations were always about race and racism and classism and and politics and what was happening in the world, even from the time I was seven, I remember these conversations. I remember my father feeling as if he had been passed over for promotions at his job, despite the fact that he had a college degree. And I remember my mom not being able to find a job teaching in the city where we lived because they were still grappling with desegregation and weren't hiring that many black educators. So my mom drove an hour to and from work every day to a neighboring town. So they taught me to question these things, but they ultimately pushed me to believe that I could do more. They had managed to learn from their parents and find a way despite the racism. And that's what they expected of us. But to do that, we had to learn how to question everything and then find our own answers. Wow. And as you are are questioning all this, as you're hearing these conversations and as that's turning into questions about these topics of racism and, and classism and just the the narrative and the and the real lived experiences of your family members, what did you do with that? What did you do with those conversations after you were having those questions? How did that turn into more of who you are today? I journaled a lot. I mean, when you're an only child, you don't have anybody to talk to. So <laughs> I I started to write from a very early age and I saved those journals for a long time because they narrated my entire experience as a young woman growing up in the South, as a young black woman growing up in the South, especially. So I wrote to God, actually, I started every page, dear God, this is Danielle and this is what happened today. And this is what I need to know. So I had these written conversations over time But then I went out and experienced the world. So the other thing that being an only child teaches you is that you don't particularly want to go home a lot because there's not much social activity going on there. Hmm. So I craved interactions in other spaces. I went to every camp I could possibly go to. I found all these experiences that, of course, my family usually could not afford. I want to go here. I want to go there. I want to go to D.C. I want to go to Europe. So I found all these experiences and my family, to their credit, I don't know how they did it, but they managed to find a way to send me to most of them. And I got to be in the world and learn the world. So I found the answers to many of my questions with other people in other places. And then I know that there are some questions that will stay unanswered. Wow. 
Wow. Okay. We have to circle back to that. I'm loving this. <laughs> so in this process of, of questioning and, and answering, somehow from a purpose work standpoint, you ended up in, in education. Talk to me about the linkage mm-hmm. between those experiences that you had as a child and these experiences as you're going out to see the world and, and to gain answers from the world. How did that turn into what you do now in education? This is a reflective question for me, so I'll try to be concise while I'm also thinking through it. So I learned very early to be independent. My parents says working class black parents were gone a lot. And I, that was the norm. It was the norm for every black family I knew at the time. I really did not know that there were people whose moms stayed at home when I was growing up early. So I remember actually a specific example. My dad used to work second shift in the tobacco factory and he got switched to first shift. So there was no one at home to see me off to school. So at seven, I was at home by myself for probably 30 to 40 minutes in the morning, watching the clock and making sure that I got myself out to the bus on time. And today that would potentially be unheard of. I mean, who leaves their seven-year-old alone? But that was my family. You have to do this. It also was contextualized. And this is where some of my other questions came from, because very early in my life, my dad decided he wanted to live in the suburbs and he wanted to build a house in a suburb that was all white. So the first builder that he contacted flat out said he refused to build for black people, except he did not use that word. He used another word. Wow. So my dad eventually found a builder who built the house for us. But it meant that we had achieved or my dad had achieved that financial dream. But we didn't have a community because my parents did not trust our white neighbors. So I questioned that. I questioned why I couldn't go over to my friend's quote unquote house. I didn't really understand that my family didn't trust that they could be my real friends. So that actually turned into me going on to high school. And eventually, initially, I thought I was going to be a journalism major in college. But one summer, I went to one of these famous camps at Northwestern University and decided I couldn't be a journalist. I'm not going to pry into people's lives in that way, not to make money or preserve my job for sure. So my senior year of high school, I had a teacher, Miss Weeks, I'll never forget her, who actually asked me had I ever considered being a teacher. And honestly, I had not, even though my mom had been a teacher for over 20 years, it had never occurred to me. So I use that example to young people to say, sometimes you don't even know what to question. Sometimes you don't even know that you need to ask a question until somebody asks it of you. So when she asked, I went and applied for this particular scholarship that she suggested. And it turned out to be the North Carolina Teaching Fellow Scholarship. And I got the scholarship. And it was the only way that I could have paid for college. Because as hard as my parents worked, they did not have a college savings fund established for me. So fast forward, I became a teacher. And I learned to turn those questions that I had as a young child, as a teenager, my desire to connect to people, but not necessarily through journalism, I turned that into maybe I can help young people learn to lead. Maybe I can help them learn to question the world. Maybe I can help them problem solve so that they can perhaps solve the world's persistent social problems. So the last thing I'll say to your question is I realized also You know, you become these things. I think Michelle Obama's book is so timely because becoming is the story of so many of our lives. I became a teacher 
at a certain moment in time, my first year teaching, I had a young girl who called me the B word in class. I mean, this class was, um, for lack of a better phrase, they were just off the chain. And I was trying desperately as a first year teacher to teach them. And she called me the B word. And I said, you're not going to use that language in class. I'm going to talk to your mother. And she said, you know, call my mama. I don't care. So I was actually terrified. I thought her mother would not want to talk to me. But I I gathered the courage and I called her and I will never forget. Her mother said, after she listened to me describe what had happened in class, she said, I don't know how to help you because she talks to me that way. Wow. And I said, this is when I became a teacher, ma'am, she's not going to talk to me that way. And she's not going to talk to you that way. So we need to figure this out. And so I say all that to say that as you, I mean, in questioning, as I question the world, I started to to have these very specific encounters that changed my direction, that gave me passion, that gave me the confidence that, hey, really, I can be an educator. I can teach. I can positively impact people's lives. That is so huge. I want to sit with this is hitting me so hard, this idea of questioning the world and that leading to purpose and that leading to this sense of of becoming. What would your advice be? I know that there are a lot of students, a lot of people who are afraid to question. That's kind of this whole notion of building without a blueprint is that you there's this fear that I I don't know what's on the other end of the questioning. And so I can sense there's this discomfort. I can sense there's stuff that I don't know. I can sense that there's this, there's this unfulfillment, but I'm afraid to question. What would you say to somebody who's listening and, and on that journey? How do you find the courage to, to question so that you can go on the journey towards becoming? I'll start with giving an example because I understand, I empathize with that dilemma, not feeling as if you necessarily have the courage to question all the time. I was a doctoral student and I was sitting in a stats class and I'm terrible at stats. I mean, I'm just awful. So I was actually in this class with four other black women and we took up the whole front row, the left side, because we all collectively had admitted that we did not know stats and we were going to learn it together and we were going to be up front in that classroom. So I'm sitting there one day and the professor put a problem on the board that took up the entire board and he got to the end of it. And I honestly did not even know what to ask. I had no idea what he had just done and none of us did. So we knew we had to ask something, but we didn't know what. And so finally I said, could you just start over? And he said, Oh, of course. And he re-explained it and redid it. And so I have started to have just a bank of, you know, simple ways to ask a question when I don't even know where to begin. And then I can get to a more specific question. I've also learned to sometimes preface my question with an explanation. And that helps with tone because some people take offense at your questioning, um, but you still need an answer. So you have to figure out how to preface the question in a way that allows the person to hear it so that they actually provide an authentic answer. So I may start off with, you know, this has been a struggle for me for my entire life, not understanding this particular point. So could you? And then I'll ask the question or whatever it is. Or I heard that or I learned five years ago that this was the case, but you seem to be saying something different. So could you explain that? So this actually took practice for me. And I would say to everybody that 
it helps. It helps me to write out a few questions before I enter any situation so that I can be sure to get it answered before we leave. This is amazing. And I I love this because this wasn't even in any of the the pre-work for our conversation, but it is so fascinating to the concept of building without a blueprint. And, and I want to make sure to pause and, and make a marked note there for our listeners to know that this is a huge nugget, the power of questioning as a means of unfolding purpose. I think a common question that we get for the show, which is part of the whole reason for it is, you know, how do you find your purpose or how do you, uh, even if you know what it is, what is the how? And I think we don't emphasize questioning enough as a part of the how. And what you said, I could see that being taken into every space, whether you are mm-hmm. parenting, dating, you know, going back and forth in your faith or applying it for a new job opportunity, the power of questioning in terms of, of becoming. So now you've gone through this journey of questioning and of kind of learning and gaining answers. And as you gain answers, gaining perspective, and as you gain perspective, getting these experiences to try. Um, for those who are just meeting you, um, talk to us a little bit about what do you do now these days from a career standpoint? And what was sort of the story behind that that led up to your current role? I have a bachelor's degree in secondary education with a concentration in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I have a master's degree in history from Wake Forest University, and I have a PhD in curriculum and teaching and cultural studies with a certificate in women and gender studies from the University of North Carolina Greensboro. My master's thesis was actually on the enslaved African-American community in Salem, North Carolina, and their religious experiences. And my dissertation was on the student movement for the freestanding Sonia Haynes-Stone Black Cultural Center at UNC Chapel Hill. Wow. Just dropped it on them. Just dropped it on them. Come on, (laughs) queen with degrees and then wrote Uh, something so they know about it. They do. Mm. Currently, I am a professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. I just recently stepped down from being the Associate Dean of Teacher Education and Outreach in the Watson College of Education. Prior to that, I was a department chair. And prior to that, I was director of our professional development system. We have partnerships with over 140 public schools in this region of North Carolina. So I had been, after being a professor for several years, an assistant professor, then an associate and now a professor. I have been that for several years and an administrator for almost seven and a half. And I decided that it was time to step back from being an administrator. So I can go into detail about why, but I'll connect this back to your question about purpose and your comments about finding your why. My why is always my maternal grandmother. And She worked, as I mentioned, as a farmer. My mother dragged me kicking and screaming down to visit her every summer, and we had to work with her in the fields. So in hindsight, when I became an adult, and of course, when my grandmother passed away, I just embraced those experiences because she was a formidable woman, and I had not given her enough credit for that until I interviewed her during my doctoral program. And in listening to the interview, she said over and over, we worked. And before she passed away, she had to stop working because she lost her eyesight. And she said, if I had not lost my eyesight, I would have kept working. And it makes me Hmm. 
cry almost every time I think about it because she never complained. She never said, if these people had done this for me, if we had been able to go here, she never talked about what she had not been able to do in a way that hindered her ability to see the possibilities. So I came to understand all those experiences on the farm really meant something and made me who I am today in as much as I decided, oh my, I can't ever work on a farm like that. I mean, that I just, that work is impossible for me to understand. She works from sun up to sundown in the fields, in the sun with very little water. And so I say to myself all the time, that's my why. If my grandmother did this, if she could survive this, if she could do it without complaining, if she could still do it and go back to further her own education because she went to take a reading class, then there is nothing that I cannot do. And there certainly isn't anything that I should allow to hinder me from pursuing those goals. So that's my why. It's why I educate. It's why I teach, because I believe fundamentally that we, particularly as African-Americans, have to keep that history close. And we have to hug those people that came before us that are still here. And we have to do that always with an eye towards the future and our young people. As you're saying that, I'm I'm hearing this kind of dual focus when you say hold our history close, that is not just holding book history close or holding these spotlighted people in, in our culture and in, in our narrative, but holding our living history close. I think exactly. even hearing about what you're saying with going back to interview her and to hear about her story when you're doing your doctoral work, I think is huge. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which you have continued to interweave your childhood into what you do now. Talk to us a little bit about the impact of your childhood and the ways in which you kept those connected during your doctoral work, still keeping that living history alive to go back and and include her in that narrative. Talk to us a little bit about the relationship between your childhood and that living history and what you've been able to do in higher education. So I came up when, when many cities, not just the one I was in, were desperately trying to desegregate schools still. I was born in the 70s. And you would think that since we'd had the Brown decision in 1954, that schools would have been desegregated and a lot of them were not. So many of my early school experiences were in white classrooms where I was the only black child. That in particular was because I had two teachers in second and third grade. One was white, my second grade teacher, and one was African-American in third grade who decided that I should be tested for the gifted program. And I don't share this to, to say that I'm smart. I share this to provide an example. They fought for me to even be tested because our district did not necessarily believe black children could be gifted. And my black teacher in particular partnered with the white teacher to do this. So she found an ally I witnessed that early on, that as powerful as she was as an African-American educator, she knew that given that circumstance in that time that she needed a white ally to make Mm -hmm. this happen. And they worked that system for me and got me into the program, along with the help of my mother. Of course, who was very supportive as an educator. So fast forward, I spent most of my entire career in classrooms as the only black child. And I will never forget my mom 
went to an open house in high school and came back and said, oh, your teacher greeted me by name. She knew who I was. And I said, mom, that is because I'm the only black student in the class. (laughs) And she said, I had no idea all these years. So by that time, I was 16. And me being the only one had started when I was seven. And there were a couple of years in there where I actually was in more integrated classrooms. But my point only is my childhood being the only one, having teachers who were advocates for me taught me that I could not just be a teacher to teach the content, that teaching is an act of social justice, that I have to engage in it with an intentionality to make sure that all of those young people who have been historically disenfranchised understand that education can be their tool. It can be a mechanism for them to achieve their dreams. So that intentionality actually has has transferred to me being an advocate as a teacher. And I'll give you one final example. My first year teaching, once again, that crazy year while I was learning how to be a teacher, I had a student that actually essentially passed out in class, although it happened so slowly, I just thought he was going to sleep and taking a nap. And I was furious. So I went to try to wake him up and he would not wake up. And I thought, this is odd. Why won't he wake up? And then I panicked but because he didn't wake up. And so I got all the kids out of the classroom. We called the paramedics and the paramedics stood there trying to bring this young man, you know, back. And they thought he was on drugs and he had taken something illegal. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, you have to get the courage to say something. And finally, I said, I don't think he does drugs. So then they went and found a form, apparently, that his mother had sent into the office, which said he was diabetic. He was in a diabetic coma. Wow. And they resuscitated him. And I think back to that time. That was the time, the moment in time I became an advocate for young people who are historically disenfranchised. Because as a young black man, all those white paramedics thought he was doing drugs. And if I had not said, I don't think he does drugs, I'm not sure where he would be. And I use that story with my young people today. First of all, you never sleep in my class. Not ever. That's not an option because I will be afraid that you're dying. Literally. (laughs) That's it. You, we don't have any time to waste. Time is precious. We don't have it to waste as a people. So if you don't like what I'm teaching, by all means, get engaged, offer suggestions. We can make a different plan. We can design a different blueprint, but we will learn something together. So I would say that's how my childhood actually impacted my work as a teacher and how I became an educator. And actually, one thing I didn't mention about what I do, my university opened a lab school last year. And you, of course, came to be our keynote speaker in that. And so that fundamentally has represented this intersection of my childhood journey my ancestors, my grandmother, grandparents, and all my experiences early on as a high school teacher came together in that one space and time to help open this school that hopefully will create different possibilities for our children. I'm getting stirred up over here. This is crazy. I want to highlight something you said that every listener needs to mark. Teaching is an act of social justice teaching is an act of social justice. And I think what you bring up about 
um, this school seems to be like one of the, not a culmination, but kind of like a hallmark of all these experiences coming together from what you experienced as a student growing up from your family context and the conversations that you heard, and then your experience as a teacher in high school, and then going to higher education on the university level. Uh, tell us a little bit about first, what is a lab school? And then tell us about this school that you've had the opportunity to partner with. A lab school, historically, is supposed to be this place where research and practice come together seamlessly. So that all that we know as academics in universities about what good teaching is, we actually can put that into practice in schools so that whatever teachers are teaching is actually informed by research. There have been a lot of lab schools that have been developed over the years in the U.S. Probably the most famous are the University of Chicago lab schools. But here in our state, our legislators decided about two years ago that they wanted to try something different with schools that had historically been underperforming. And of course, underperformance is based primarily on standardized test scores. So for all the schools that have kids that cannot pass these tests at the end of the year and they are not able to demonstrate that they can read and do basic math and demonstrate basic critical thinking skills. What are we going to do with those schools? So they asked universities to partner with school districts that had low performing schools, identify a school that the university could operate and then the university would open it as a lab school. So in partnership with New Hanover County Schools here, we opened DC Virgo Preparatory Academy. That was its name before. It was a middle school serving students 6A, and we reopened it as a K-8 school. In all of our community workshops or forums prior to the opening of our school, we discovered that nobody in the community wanted it to be called a lab school because that gave the impression that their children were going to be experimented on. (laughs) And nobody wants their child to be the lab rat. So understood. So we make sure that we call our school what it is. It's GC Virgo Preparatory Academy. The legislation simply refers to them as lab schools. And we have about 225 kids. We only had about a year to open. That included making all the structural changes to the building. That included getting all the contracts. That included hiring all the teachers. I led that effort. And it was remarkable. (laughs) And it took a lot of people and a lot of work. My role, I would say, fundamentally, was to be the connector, to be the explainer, to help assuage fears and to open doors to hope for this particular community. Because they really felt as if the world that they had that they had been ignored by many, many people in this area. So I will say quickly to understand why people might have felt like that in Wilmington, North Carolina. We have a very interesting racial history. In 1898, we had a coup d'etat. And so white supremacists took over the government in Wilmington and actually ousted African-Americans who were actually holding public office and took land from African-Americans. Black people had to move. They left the the county. And we are still living the residual effects of that hostility today. So this particular community where our school is, is very close to where all of that happened. So we had to make sure that our teachers understood that. And when the university came in to say, hey, we're going to do this partnership, we're going to operate the school, we're going to try to make it this 
this incredible learning space, what I tried to focus on was this is about family. It's about our families. It's about our people. It's about making sure that as much as we remember this history, that we don't let this history completely define us, that we create another future for our young people and that they help us do it together and that the community helps us do it together. So I would say that's where we are now with the school and we have not even finished the first year. So we are just all trying to get through this year right now. But to see the the young people and their eyes and their dreams and their humor, they're funny and we we love them. And every day teachers say to kids, we love you. And that is the point of school that somehow, somewhere, a child feels loved. Wow. 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 Something you said that's not a small thing at all, like to have done this in a year, you led that effort. Like you led that effort. You didn't just champion it, but you led that effort of literally building this partnership between a university and a school that had been I mean, pretty much in, in some senses and in some eyes and perspectives deemed as hopeless, like they are low performing. This is just it, it is not worth our investment in, and your tie to the historical implications of that. Like, how did you find the, the strength and the voice to be that sort of advocate to pull all these people together? Because you just mentioned you were talking to two very different groups. You were talking to the parents who said or who were coming from the perspective of what is lab school? I want my child <laughs> being experimented on. And, and even and even to the extent of having to deal with some of the fears about another organization taking over that school that may not that trust just wasn't there, right? Of a, of a school, of a large institution. And at the same time, you're also talking to that institution to secure the reasons why they should invest it, invest in it and build it. How did you navigate those two advocating for one group and sitting in the seat of power to get them to invest in this school? Wow. Princeton, you don't ask any easy questions, do you? (laughs) So I will start with saying, that luckily we had models and having studied black women educators for decades, I knew the work of Charlotte Hawkins Brown. I knew the work of Mary McLeod Bethune. I knew the work of these powerful women who had started schools in circumstances that were far more resource depressed than ours. And I'd read their narratives. And so I figured if they could do it, certainly we should learn from them first and then create a blueprint. Let's not try to make one from scratch. They already had facilitated the development of these amazing schools for African-Americans at a time when most white people did not necessarily believe that we should even be educated. So fast forward Taking the lessons learned from them, first of all, it's always a balancing act. You always have to secure funding from typically white donors who believe in the cause, who are your allies. Thankfully, today, it's not just white donors, but we have a mix of multiracial, multiethnic people who are interested in this particular school. But that understanding that you have to be able to build networks with people who have the financial capacity to give to support the school matters, number one. You also have to be able to talk to the community and understand what their needs and hopes are. You have to understand the logistics of a university that 
is in academia. And so in many, many ways, we have been accused of moving at a glacial pace because we think about things. We want to understand all of the dynamics of a decision before we make it. You don't necessarily have that luxury when operating a public school where that kindergartner is showing up tomorrow, regardless of whether or not you're ready. So having to bring all of those things together, I think, was one of those I don't want to call it a problem, but it was it was just something that I understood. And I'm glad that I understood that picture because I am a whole picture thinker. And we had lots of people that are very detail oriented around us. So we had this phenomenal team between the university and the school district and the community that actually had the content knowledge, had the historical knowledge and had the logistical understanding of how to make this happen. But more than anything, the belief in kids that we believe in you, in them, that we understand it as our responsibility collectively to make sure that they're in a better place than we were when we were younger. This is not a choice. Service is not a choice um, from my perspective as a black woman educator. And so cultivating a collective dream, cultivating a collective vision was one of our primary focus areas. When we designed the school, we decided that we would focus on kinship. Where did that come from? I didn't make this up. I went and interviewed the young people that attended the school at the time. And I asked a few, like a small focus group of them, what is it that you love about your school? And what is it that you would like to change about your school? And they were completely honest. But the theme that came across most clearly was, we love that our teachers treat us like family. We appreciate being here because they care about us. You cannot make that up. You just can't. You have to hire people who have that in their DNA as teachers, that I'm going to educate this child as if it were my own child. I'm going to talk to this family, this mother, this father, as if they are my siblings, that we are not just partner together, but we exist because of each other. And it's that comes from an Mbutu philosophy. I am in relationship, therefore I am. And so it is central to the way that we design the school to be in kinship with each other. So I'll stop there and say it's been an amazing journey. And I've been thankful that I was here at this place in time that I was able to lead the effort, but that we had an incredible collective that came together to make it happen. You mentioned something that one of the things that helped you navigate this space was that you said, look, I, a lot of this I didn't come up with. I studied it and centering not just black educators, but black women educators. Um, you called out a couple of those names, but can you give us a, a few more names of some of your sheroes in this space that you looked to, to kind of help you as you were building in this space without a blueprint? And what were just some big things that you learned from your sheroes? I will say, so other than Charlotte Hawkins Brown, Mary McLeod Bethune, Fannie Lou Hamer, of course, I will say that Elizabeth Edford, I'm not sure if I don't want to mispronounce her name, but she was one of the Little Rock Nine, and everybody knows that iconic photo of her. She got separated from the group when they were desegregating the high school, and there's a photo of her being literally screamed at in the crowd. So all of these women taught me, not only do you have to plan, not only do you have to network, 
because of course the little rock nine did just up and decide, Hey, we're just going to walk to this school one day. There was, there was intentionality to that plan. Not only do you have to plan, but you have to listen. You have to be aware. You have to be present. You have to remain calm and centered. And it's that centering that I always take with me into every community meeting, into every university meeting, into every circumstance where we have multiple parties with different agendas coming to the table that if I know that my vision is collective work, collective responsibility, kinship, love, hope, and advocacy, if that's what I'm fighting for, then that we all are fighting for that. And if that's the ultimate goal, then all of the other pieces of our individual agendas can go to the wayside. They can, they can be secondary that we can actually focus on what matters for young people. So I took that. So all of those images that I grew up with from the civil rights movement of the sit-ins at the Woolworth, Woolworth counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, these young people leading this movement are just amazing to me and struck me as how, how do you come to that kind of courage? By 18 or 19 or 20, 24, that's ridiculous, but it can be learned. Hmm. It can be learned. And if it can be learned, we can teach it. (laughs) Whoa, whoa. Courage can be learned. Mm -hmm. And if it can be learned, then that means we can teach it. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So you are in this space because I want to make sure that we get a chance to highlight highlight all the things that you do. There's so many of them, one of which being your work as a professor, another one being your work with this incredible school, the DC Virgo Preparatory Academy. At the same time, for a period of time, I loved when you were talking about your, your titles, there was this whole string. I was like, that's one of those is more than what most people achieve in their entire life. You just casually like, oh yeah, you know, for a little bit I was an associate dean and then, you know, that was time up for that. So I went to go do something else. Tell me a little bit about your experience in these spaces of administration and teaching in higher education as a black woman and how have you navigated that? I've had to learn how to be much more diplomatic than I'm normally. So I grew up, as I said, listening, but I also grew up with a voice and learned early on how to articulate what I wanted to say. I'm a much better writer, though. I much prefer to write it than to necessarily speak it on the spot. So I've learned, though, to combine those two. It's a skill. You can practice and get better at it. But in predominantly white universities, which is where I've spent the majority of my academic career and the majority of my administrative career, is tough. And we have networks of Black women at these institutions. We write together. We talk together. We commiserate together. We believe together. And so oftentimes we'll, we will say, you know, I could work at a historically black college or university. I would love to work there or teach there. Why am I here at a predominantly white institution? And the answer comes back to, we had so many people before us that fought for the right for us to be here, that somebody needs to be there. Hmm. So that grounds me first and foremost, that there is a purpose for black women as academics at predominantly white universities and at any institution, of course, 
um, that we always need thought leaders. We always need, this is from Gramsci, but these organic intellectuals, people that are always connected to their communities, to the folks that actually make the work happen every day so that we can bring that knowledge of, of work, being out there in the fields with my grandmother back to how do I think about that work? How do I learn about that work? How do I study that work? Which is what typically happens at universities. And so in short, how do I function at a predominantly white university? I listen. Number one, I read people. Number two, slash study people. And number three, I take that information and I ask questions of them and connect with them. So I'll give you an example. Every day I'd walk down the office when I was not down the office, down the hallway, I'm sorry, as a department chair, just to say hello to the faculty that worked in my department. And I would notice when people were upset or if they were distracted or if they were bothered. And so even if I didn't have time in that moment, to follow up, I would always circle back to the office or send an email or call or text and ask, how are you? You looked as if something was bothering you today. And inevitably, they will tell you what. They will give you more. Mm -hmm. And it is then that people feel as if they're really seen. They're visible. And if you can create an atmosphere, a culture, a climate, a space where people feel visible, you can do anything because they'll come to you. They'll work with you. They will hear you and they will see you. So I say to young people all the time, as you develop your leadership skills, yes, I want you to have voice. Yes, I want you to speak, but do not underestimate the value of studying people. Wow. As you were unpacking that, you kind of centered the group of women that you get to spend time with and, and kind of reaffirm purpose with. As we zoomed into your experience in this space, I'd like to zoom out and just ask, how would you define Black womanhood? What does that mean for you? How would you define it? What is, how has that come alive and how have you embodied that, that definition in, in your walk? One of the books that I read recently, well, actually it was a few years ago, it's called A Forgotten Sisterhood, Pioneering Black Women Educators and Activists in the Jim Crow South, if I'm not mistaken. It's by Audrey McCluskey. So two things that were clear, made clear in that book, which I think we all know, but it's always nice to see them again, is that Black women come from this incredible tumultuous history that we've inherited a sisterhood in many ways. So I have to always remember, I didn't create the sisterhood. It came to me. Hmm. I have to claim it. So, and that is an active statement because just because I'm a black woman doesn't mean that I'm in the sisterhood. It means that it's there for me and I have to claim it. So I remember being an undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill and one of the articles that I've written talks about this notion of coming out black. How do you, you know you're black? I knew I was black, African-American. I was raised in this incredible tradition with a family that talked about politics and what that mean, means. But I had gone to school in a lot of ways, having to be silent about that K-12, but not in college. I got to claim what that meant for me in that space in college. 
So in that coming out, I began to understand what it really could mean, what the power of this collective could mean. So that's number one, that I think I have come to understand what it means to inherit a sisterhood. I also go back to, you asked me about black women. One of the other influential women for me is Alice Walker. Three things that she said that stick with me to this day. I am an expression of the divine. The more I wonder, the more I love. And all my life, I had to fight in the color purple. Those three things define me in so many ways and I think are the essence of what connects me to so many different women that there is this spiritual connection that that I will always live with, that I've always been a part of. There is this spirit, as I said, questioning. It's a spirit of wonder that she describes it. This this ability to see the world and to appreciate and embrace the color, the vibrancy, the love and the compassion. At the same time, you understand the hate and the viciousness. So that for me is always a component of black womanhood. And then the last is, I feel like I always have to fight whether or not that's usually metaphorical. Thankfully, I'm not having to come to blows with anyone physically, but metaphorically, we are always fighting for equity. We're always fighting for justice. We're, we're always fighting for a seat at the table. We're always fighting for, for people to understand the intellectual capacity that we have and can bring and the emotional capacity that we have it can bring. So that, that's the trifecta for me from Alice Walker. And then I will say last but not least, how do I translate that into my teaching? How do I take what I believe to be Black womanhood into my teaching for all my students, not just for my Black girls? Is of course, recently everybody's probably watched the movie Hidden Figures and come to know the story of Katherine Johnson and that I found a quote from her once, and it was so simple, so simple, but powerful. And she said, I don't have a feeling of inferiority. I never had. I'm as good as anybody, but no better. That claim to I never had a feeling of inferiority, that's a struggle. And we have to embrace that. No, no, we are not inferior. Don't claim that. You're not necessarily better than anybody else, but you're certainly not inferior. And so that you can move in the world and understand, hey, I may not be the smartest person in the room, but I can certainly be the most prepared person in the room. And that's my mantra. Understand the history, understand the visible connections that we have in the world and the transcendent ones, the ones that you can't even quite conceive of yet. But if you stay connected to all of these beautiful black women and other advocates for social justice in the world that you will discover, uncover, and illuminate possibilities that you didn't even know existed. Wow. That's my short explanation. <laughs> and I'm sure there are many others. Oh my goodness. Uh, I want to get down to my last few questions. As we look at that understanding of continuing to to fight. It's important, like you said, that we kind of even wrestle with that tension of never feeling inferior, continuing to fight, but also kind of embodying the divine in that. I think it's safe to say that with all these things you're going on and always having to fight that that takes a toll. 
how do you recharge? How do you self-care? And in what ways do you pour back into you and find strength to continue to do the purpose work that you do? I'm going to take a divergent path here. So I'm a Star Trek fan, old school Star Trek. I used to watch Star Trek when I was little. And there was an episode. I know it's crazy. But there was an episode once where the captain could not pass this particular simulation in training. And it was because the solution, quote unquote, was to retreat. And his natural response as a leader was never to retreat, to always fight. So in September of this year, I realized that being an administrator was taking too much of a toll on my family. My husband is wonderful and beautiful and incredibly supportive, has supported me throughout my doctoral program, my master's degree even, and we're raising two girls together. My girls have always understood the sacrifice. But I decided that it was time to retreat, that I need to come back home and not always be gone from them. And to do that just took a leap of faith. I actually, I will say out loud because I have to say it, that I took a salary cut of $40,000 to step back from my administrative position. Wow. On faith. Wow. Because what matters is my girls are my girls, my family, my sanity, and my capacity to keep loving. And I just did not feel like I could continue to enter the work I was doing in love, given the emotional exhaustion that I felt. So here I am. Thankfully, because I work in academia and I've been an administrator for so long, I can take a research leave. So I am on research leave this semester, finishing a book, and then I will return to full-time teaching in the fall of next year. But I say all that to say, sometimes we need to retreat. Wow. I wrote this down, my capacity to keep loving. And I want to mark that because I think that's so powerful, especially giving the numeric figure. And, and I think some people would, would be gassed at the number, right? And be like, child, I wouldn't, Lord Jesus, 40K, Lord, they just going to have to see me tomorrow. Um, but I, I think it, it makes us take pause to ask, how much is your capacity to keep loving worth to you? Like that's what right. that's what jumped out to me because I I had that first gasp like oh Lord Jesus <laughs> I had that like wait hold on we can figure it out okay but when you yeah my grandmother's probably like girl yeah she's like girl but when you put it in that like when you said those five words my capacity to keep loving. I was like that, that says it all because what are we doing this for? If we have a, and, and I think it's really powerful to center that from a building perspective because this show is so heavily focused on building and purpose and achieving. But, you know, I say it all the time, but this is that lived out that what you're building is nothing and it won't be sustained if you don't invest in the builder and the capacity to, to keep loving. Um, you mentioned you're writing a book. Last thing before we go to some fun stuff. What was, you are an author as well. 
what are some of the books and titles that you've written that people can find and support? And then talk to us about a little bit about your research as well. So I have some of the, I've written two books. I wrote one and actually edited another. Most of what I've written have been articles and book chapters. The first book was actually an invited book for a particular series that another editor was doing. And it was on psychoanalytic theorists. So I'm not sure how interesting it would be to everybody, but it's called Jacques Lacan and Education. And I used psychoanalytic theory to actually rethink the way we do education and public schools in the U.S. And the second book is is the Sexuality Curriculum and Youth Culture. Mm-hmm. And it was edited with Dennis Carlson. And the chapters, it has a number of chapters in the book. And I have a chapter in the book actually on hip-hop and Black women and the the images, the narratives that are portrayed through hip hop, what kind of story they're telling about us and what students are learning from those stories through hip hop. But the book overall actually challenges how we teach about sexuality in public schools or how we ignore sexuality in public schools to our kids' detriment. So I think it's a really interesting book with several different chapters that uh, might be useful for educators in particular as they try to figure out how to how to teach young people who they are as sexual beings developing in the world. It's tough. Mm-hmm. I know it's tough. And then the book I'm working on that I still need to finish, I have to finish the semester, is going to be called The Cyberspace Curriculum. So it's looking at how social media has actually changed the way we do politics and talk about race and class and gender and how we teach in the world. And I'm working particularly on the political social movement aspect because I think that's what really is going to be important for us as educators moving forward, that young people are learning how to use and are using social media in a way to move, in a way to change thought, in a way to disseminate ideas. So how do we teach them how to do that in productive ways? How do we actually track and follow and learn from social media and its impacts on political movement? That's what I'm working on right now. Just casually. Just casually <laughs> writing, writing books to change the course of history and, and uh, the way we think about education. Just, you know, just on the side, just because you felt like it. Oh, but my it, goodness. Wow. 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 Okay. So one of the things that you said earlier, you said, Princeton, you don't ask any hard questions. And like, the more I listen back to these interviews, I'm like, I really don't. I think it's because, and this came from a, um, before I was doing just analytics, listen back to past podcast episodes, this came from like a therapy session. And my therapist was like, Princeton, you are so deep. Like you are just like deep all the time. Like I just live in that space. Like this is stuff that, that I just love to chew on. I'm that like, give me the tough piece of me. I'll just sit and chew on it until it's like over and done with. Okay. So before we go, I want to make sure that we are just highlighting you as an individual. Your work is phenomenal, but you are so much more than professor, author, researcher, motivator, speaker, wife, mother, world changer. Um, so let's ask some fun questions. This is going to be our rapid fire. That means I should probs set a timer, which I'm going to do or else this becomes. All right, let's get 
There we go. Two minutes. Perfect. And these are just going to be fun questions to get to know you. Okay. What's your favorite food? Steak. Steak. Is there a particular place <laughs> it should come from? No, but it, it's a good steak. It doesn't need any sauce. This is true. This is true. <laughs> okay. Sade, Layla Hathaway, or Anita Baker? I can't pick. I'll say Layla Hathaway because I just recently met her. So. Wait, what? Wait, hold on. Wait, that is, you just casually dropped the most non-casual thing ever. I know. Wait, uh, uh, this is rapid fire. Okay, we have to come back to that. What's your favorite movie? The Color Purple. Yes, Alice Walker, for show. Who or what is your style inspiration? I don't have one and I desperately need one. <laughs> How long have you and your husband been married? 20 years. 20 years. Okay, what's the best date you've ever been on? Our first date that he took me out of town we went to king's dominion to the amusement park and had a blast rode rides rode all day i love roller coasters and i'll never forget the last roller coaster of the day i said let's ride it again and he looked at me with this horrific expression and said please no let's not (laughs) because actually i hate to ride i only brought you here because you love it oh that is so Sweet and amazing. Wait, and he waited the whole date to tell you that? <laughs> the whole day. We've been dating for a few months, and he the trip had been his idea, and I had no idea that he hated to ride. Ah, love, love him. That just made me love him <laughs> even more. <laughs> What's your pet peeve? People who say, I'm not, fill in the blank. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not an addict. I'm not a racist. Hmm. Huh. That's good. <laughs> Favorite TV show to binge watch? Blackish. Yes. Okay. See, there's the best Lily time. It yelled at me to tell me, like, you <laughs> cannot do anything else. Okay. Yeah. I just have to ask this. This is the fun one. What's one major thing you have to keep in your briefcase purse at all times? This is one I'm, I struggle with. So I'll say gum because I get motion sickness. So mm. I chew gum obnoxiously, probably on the plane, in the car. So if you ever see me chewing, <laughs> please forgive me. <laughs> it is just better than me vomiting everywhere. So there is a reason. I love it. Okay, so casually, non-casually. You met Layla Hathaway? It was actually, I shouldn't say recently, it was probably two years ago at Essence Festival. Ah, so yes. She was amazing. She was just walking around, hanging out. Wow. <laughs> and I said, can we take a picture? Of course. And she was gracious and said yes. Ah, she's so cool. She's so yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. Professor Roseboro, I can't say thank you enough. This has been so huge. Thank you, first of all, for the work that you do in the space. Thank you for being a Black woman who builds. Thank you for your your labor your time labor, your intellectual labor, your emotional labor. You are absolutely brilliant. And just the way that you have dedicated yourself and been so thoughtful about not just your experience, but the experiences of others is um, is crazy. And you've inspired me greatly. And on a personal note, thank you so much. I want our listeners to know that much of what I'm pursuing even right now for brand Princeton um, has been because of you. When I came to speak for DC Virgo and the amazing institution that it is, it was so much fun. 
getting there and there were so many like <laughs> like challenges just to arrive that day but oh, um i believe that that was strategic just because that moment was going to be of of so much value and let me tell y'all like i have been quite a few places spoken for quite a few organizations and very few have treated me better than professor roseborough treated me when i got the chance to speak for them out there we was like out there having lunch and then got a chance to go to the beach i was like am i on the beach in north carolina jesus i was like come to wilmington and not go to the beach it was perfect because that day that i spoke would have been my sabbath if i was out here and so i would have people on the podcast heard me talk about brunch in the beach and so it was just like oh my goodness i didn't have to forsake the beach to live out my purpose today um but more than that you spoke some very important things in in my life and you even texted me at, at like your timing was like prophetic the way you um, texted me just at random one day and it it nodded back to our conversation and you said hey I just hope that you're investing in your dreams or was something like that and like Mm -hmm. just in full disclosure totally cried uh, because of the moment that you sent it was that reminder of like this matters to continue sowing into what I believe so there's more to come but trust and believe as it rolls out I will let y'all know hey this is one of them things I'm doing because Professor Roseboro encouraged me and, and helped me believe that I could so from the bottom of my heart thank you if people want to keep up with you your work purchase the book or any ways that we can kind of sew back into you for the labor you poured into us um, how can we do that People can always email me. I prefer that you use my Gmail, which is Danielle Roseboro, D-O-N-Y-E-L-L-R-O-S-E-B-O-R-O at gmail.com. And I'll be happy to respond. I'll be happy to nurture, send words of encouragement because somebody did it for me. So I will say thank you again, Princeton. It was an honor to meet you. Your talk was phenomenal. Our young people just loved you. And it was a day that we will always forget and people continue to talk about. And you remind me, and this is the last point I want to leave with everybody, um, that you are young, gifted, and Black. And I will never forget those words from Lorraine Hansberry. Mm. It is what we live and it is what you are living. Wow. Thank you so much, fam. As we take off, remember some awesome things Professor Roseboro said. Courage can be a skill, which means it can be learned. And if it can be learned, it can be taught. So if you have been struggling with courage, then I want you to find a space where you can learn it. And if you are someone who has adapted courage as a gift, as a skill, I want you to figure out how you can teach that to the people who are around you. I want you to remember the power of questioning everything. I think we're even going to incorporate that. I want to do an episode on that from a faith perspective, the ways in which question questioning can lead you towards really understanding and unpacking who you are and what you believe and where you should go. I just love this term. I'm going to say this just so I can sound bad and bougie. Organic intellectuals. I just wrote that down. That just felt really good to me. Um, Leadership note. If you create a space where people feel visible, then you can do anything. And that's whatever you're leading. Know that this was one of my favorite ones, my two favorites. One, teaching is an act of social justice, which is why we had to do this episode. And three, my capacity to keep loving Well, fam, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank y'all again for listening. And uh, as I say all the time, with God as your foundation and purpose as your motivation, keep building family. Fam, was she dope or what? I am still, still, still excited about 
that interview, when she said teaching is an act of social justice, I was like, yo, that's the whole reason why I wanted you to do this episode. And so two things. One, I hope that if you're somebody who has always dreamed of contributing in the realm of education, but maybe never saw someone who looked like you or came from your experience be in that, I hope that Professor Rosebro can serve as a degree of representation and inspiration for you. But number two, I hope that you will learn from her diligence, her passion, but more importantly, I hope that you will learn from her pursuit. I was most inspired in that interview by hearing how she navigated life. It wasn't just this series of accomplishments. It was a series of experiences and the ways that she has chosen to weave those together to find her purpose in education. So Dr. Roseboro is fantastic. Definitely reach out to her if you have questions about what she said and definitely read some of her work for those of you that are interested in education. And for those of you that are interested in curriculum building and, and sexuality and education, definitely look up her work and get in contact with her. So last but certainly not least, if you don't already, please follow me on social media at Princeton Parker on Instagram and uh, Twitter as well well at Princeton Speaks on Facebook. Email me here, suggestions, topics, things that you wanted to say, things that stuck out to you, comments on the show, on the interview, or maybe even you've got somebody who we should feature, who you see is building a lot of blueprint, who's been that representation for you. You can shoot all that to me in an email at buildingwithprinceton at gmail.com. Alrighty, family, as always, with God as your foundation and purpose as your motivation, keep building family. Keep building family.